But if you want to turn to 1 John 1, a little tip, it might be easier to open from the back of your Bible rather than the front. Uh, open from the back of your Bible. It's toward the end, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Yes, free, that, that tip is free. Uh, and we're also going to look at 1 John 5, 13. 1 John 1, 1 through 4, 1 John 5, 13. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here this morning. Um, take a moment, fill out a connect card. They're uh, inserted into the bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. That's just a good way for us to get to know you and uh, hopefully get connected with you and maybe get together, grab a cup of coffee, know a little bit about you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I told you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on uh, your neighbor's Bible or uh, on your device, um, or you can just go to the back. There are white or blue paperback Bibles in the back there. You can grab one of those and turn to First John. Or if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those on the way out. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. That's our gift to you. So um, we're beginning a sermon series this morning in 1 John, which is going to take us on into April. And uh, 1 John is it's typically called, it's commonly called a, a letter, um, although many actually believe it to be a, a sermon. Uh, as you might notice, it's written a little more like a sermon than, than it is a letter. Uh, but this text before us, this letter or sermon, uh, was written and passed around to a number of churches in Asia Minor in, uh, late in the first century. And uh, probably uh, written to, and, uh, to the, uh, the church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches, the churches uh, in Ephesus and surrounding Ephesus. Um, uh, and the occasion for this letter uh, is that these churches are in a state of crisis. These churches are in a state of crisis. They're experiencing persecution externally. Uh, there have been arrests and beatings and imprisonments and killings uh, for those who, are, uh, uh, who confess the Christian faith for those in these churches. Uh, but what seems to be um, even more problematic, even more trouble, troubling to these churches is the, is the sort of internal issues Uh, they're experiencing. There have been false teachers that have infiltrated these churches, and they've taught false doctrine, and they've taught a heresy that uh, we call Gnosticism. Gnosticism starts with a G, Gnosticism. Uh, And it was a a heresy that taught, amongst other things, that that matter was inherently bad, that, that the physical was inherently bad, but that the spiritual alone was good, and you can imagine what this might do to the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine uh, we confess and believe that Jesus Christ is God, who is spirit, come to us in flesh and, and clothed in humanity. Um, and this would inevitably lead to the, the, uh, the heresy uh, called docetism to sort of take root in uh, many of the lives of these people. Uh, and docetism uh, was a heresy that taught that Jesus merely appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually human. He merely appeared to take on humanity. Uh, Because how can God, who is spirit, take on humanity, take on physicality, take on matter, which is evil? And this heresy began to spread throughout these churches, and they saw people leave the church. They even saw prominent leaders, uh, elders, be led astray and fall and, and leave the church. And you know, it can be, it can be uh, confusing 
and disillusioning and it can cause doubt and it can cause a lack of assurance and it can be frightening when things like this happen, can't it? And so when you see prominent leaders fall, when you see uh, uh, friends leave the church, man, you start to wonder. When you see people that you've walked with for a long time and had over for dinner at your house and, and shared life with, when you see them leave, that's hard. It can be scary. It can be disillusioning. It can, be, it can cause doubt to well up in your heart. And so John writes to these churches, and, and as he writes to them, he, he writes to them much in the way that, that a parent would to their, their frightened or traumatized children. And, and to John, these are his children, his spiritual children. We'll see him refer to them as his children, little children again and again throughout the letter. How do you, how do you treat a small child when, when they're frightened? How do you treat a small child when they wake up in the middle of the night from a nightmare? How do you, how do you treat a, a child who's dealing with being bullying by a bigger kid? How do you deal with, uh, how do you treat to children and speak to children who are going through things which children should never have to go through? How do you treat them? How do you, how do you speak to them? You gently and repeatedly reassure them. You, you tell them it's, it's going to be okay. I've got you. You're safe. You gently and repeatedly assure them. And that's precisely what John does here in 1 John as he's writing to these frightened Christians. He writes to them to to reassure them, to give them what we call Christian assurance. Christian assurance. That's that's the main purpose and subject of this book. You know, uh, the most commonly used verb in this book is, is the verb to know. It's repeated over 30 times in this book. The most repeated noun of the book is the word, uh, the noun confidence. And the, the, the sort of main purpose of this book, the sort of overarching purpose of this book is, is written in 1 John 5.13. We're going to read it in a few moments. But he writes, I write these things to you that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants these Christians, these churches to be assured. He wants them to know that Christ has come and to know that because Christ has come, that they're safe. He wants them to have confidence in Christ and not only confidence in Christ, but in their personal standing before God in Christ. He wants them to have Christian assurance. Now, this is important because, because often Christian assurance gets little airtime in evangelical circles. Oftentimes, there's almost like a suspicion, a suspicion that, that if God's people are too assured, they might get too comfortable and that, that might not do the, the hard work of following Jesus. They might not continue to pray. They might not continue to... Uh, attend corporate worship. You know, there's, there's, there's a suspicion. It's, if God's people are too assured, they might become apathetic and stagnant and, and lethargic. So we can't let God's people be too assured. We've got to keep them on their toes. But, but notice that's, that's the exact opposite approach that, that we see in 1 John here. We see here that God wants his people to be assured. He wants them to be comforted. He wants his people to have Christian assurance. He wants them to know that they have eternal life. He wants them to be confident. 
And how important is this for, for our day and in, in age? You know, the, the preeminent philosopher, uh, Charles Taylor, he's a Canadian guy, Roman Catholic, wonderful, uh, brilliant philosopher. And he put his, his finger on the pulse uh, of the age that we live in in, in in a way that no one else has. He calls the age we live in a secular age. You know, and he points out that, that before modernity, before the Enlightenment, going back to the 1500s, the 1600s or so, in, in, in the West, it was almost impossible to not believe in God. Even, even if someone was not a Christian, and many weren't, intellectually, Christianity was still often affirmed and just seemed to be the most plausible answer for all of life's questions. It was just the sort of default intellectually. Belief was the, intellectually was the sort of default. Even if someone wasn't a Christian, even if they didn't personally trust in Christ, it was the sort of intellectual default, if that makes sense. Well, now we deal with the exact opposite, don't we? You know, it's it, it, more and more in Western culture, belief in God, more specifically, uh, belief in the Christian faith seems to be less and less plausible to Westerners. The default now just seems to be doubt. Doubt is the default. And even for those of us who do believe, even for those of us who are Christians and followers of Jesus, we continually struggle with all sorts of doubts, don't we? Doubts concerning whether or not the Christian faith is true. Or even if we believe the Christian faith is, is true, even if we're not struggling with doubts concerning whether or not the Christian faith is true, we, we struggle with doubts concerning whether or not it's true for us. Like, like if we actually have been saved, if we are actually participating in this rescue plan that God has, has accomplished in Jesus, or if we're just faking it and going along with emotions. There's all sorts of doubts we struggle with. This is not uncommon Many, many continue to struggle with doubts, continue, we continue to struggle with the lack of Christian assurance. And to God's people, God inspired the book of 1 John to say, I write these things to you. You, who you believe, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to have Christian assurance he wants you to sing with, with old Fanny Crosby. He wants you to sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. He wants you to have Christian assurance. So that's why we are digging into 1 John. And so if you want to stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's look at 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and 1 John 5, 13. Let's listen to the voice of our God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. First John five thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life.
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would anoint the reading and proclamation of your word, the power and presence of your spirit. Would you give us assurance this morning that those of us who believe in the name of the Son of God, would you give us assurance to, to help us know that we have eternal life. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, greetings are a funny business, aren't they? Uh, I'm sure you're aware of this, but different cultures have very different ideas concerning what makes a greeting appropriate. And of course, in the United States and most Western countries, we simply say hello and shake hands. Uh, if we don't know the person we're greeting, we say our name. Uh, if, if we uh, don't know them, maybe we'll say a little bit about ourselves. If we, know, if we do know the person, if we know them intimately, there's uh, potentially a hug uh, involved. Uh, but things don't tend to, to vary much from that norm. However, if you were to travel to Tibet and China, you might be in for a surprise. If you were there and introduced to a, a, a Tibetan monk, he'll likely stick his tongue out at you in order to be polite. If you were to head south from Tibet and get on a boat and go to the Philippines, um, you, you might be in for another surprise when introduced to folks there. If you're introduced to an elder there and you fail to take their hand and put it on your forehead, you're going to be considered disrespectful. You don't want that. If you head even further south to New Zealand and you run into someone from the Maori tribe, the Maori people group, if you're welcomed and well-liked, they're going to take their nose and their forehead and put it right up against your nose and your forehead and take a deep breath. Such a greeting shows that you're welcome. It's not extended to everyone. In some African people groups, you clap when you're greeting. In some Eastern countries, you bow, head up to Greenland. And there's this really interesting thing. I kind of like this, actually. Uh, There's a good chance you're going to see loved ones who are greeting each other. If they haven't seen one another for a while, there's a good chance that you'll see them sniffing each other's faces. All that to say, different cultures have different types of greetings that they deem appropriate and which people from other cultures think strange, right? And when we come to 1 John 1, 1 through 4 this morning, you might be thinking, what a strange greeting. This is, this is strange. What a strange introduction to a letter. Here's an introduction and greeting that, that doesn't contain the author's name. Uh, it doesn't contain the, the, the name of the specific people to whom he's writing. It doesn't say, like so many of Paul's letters do, Paul, an apostle to the saints of such and such church and such and such city, And what's more, this is a really complicated sentence, isn't it? It, it, It's almost like a tongue twister, as one commentator points out. Another commentator states that this is the most complicated sentence in all of John's writings in the New Testament. It's a really complicated sentence. It's a weird greeting according to our norms and standards, isn't it? He starts with talking about a subject, but he says, that which, that's his subject, that which... And he repeats the word which several times. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. So, okay, that isn't a very descriptive word. What does he mean by which? 
But that's not the only question. Uh, We noted how the author doesn't really introduce himself. He never says his name, not in this letter or the two that follow. Instead, the author just says we over and over again. He never explicitly states who we is. So you might be wondering who the author is and who else is involved in this collective we. And now you're probably wondering what which is and who we is. However, you're probably not wondering what the purpose of this letter is because the author makes that abundantly clear with a few different purpose statements throughout the book. One in verse three, one in verse four. There's also another in chapter two uh, that we won't get to this morning. And there's one in verse 513. And so we want to address that this, this morning by asking why. And that pretty well explains our outline. We're going to ask three questions, which, we, and why this morning. Which, we, and why. And as we unpack the answers to those questions, we'll see that the good news about Jesus Christ comes to us through the apostles for our salvation, joy, and assurance. So as we just noted, 1 John 1, 1 begins in an interesting way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. And he goes on much the same in verse 3 as well. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And this just begs the question, doesn't it? What is John talking about? What is, what is which? Or more appropriately, who is which, W-H-I-C-H, by the way, not W-I-T-C-H. We're not talking about a green elderly woman with a pointy hat and broom who does magic. Which, W-H-I-C-H, what does the author mean here? Well, we see that the witch that he's talking about was from the beginning. It's echoing, of course, John 1, 1, a text we looked at just last week when the Apostle John reveals to us the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which is echoing Genesis 1, which we read earlier, which reveals to us that the eternal nature of God, in the beginning God, God is pre-existing the material world. He is pre-existent. He is eternal. The author is telling us, That which he is talking about is eternal, forever existing in eternity past. And he goes on to describe how this eternal one was was one with whom he came in close contact. He appeals to the different senses to describe this too. He says that which we have heard, that which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands. Of course, we know that God is spirit. He is immaterial. He is invisible. He can't be seen. He can't be touched. Yet the author is obviously referring to a visible material reality. He's saying that which he is talking about became physical, put on physicality, put on matter. Or to use his his language uh, used twice in verse 2, it was made manifest. Or to use the language again in, in John 1, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It seems he's talking about Jesus here, doesn't it? He's talking about the person of Jesus Christ, which is contested. Some believe he's talking about a message or a concept, but John isn't talking about a message or a concept merely here. He's talking about the person that the message is about. He's talking about the person of Jesus Christ. He's talking about uh, the Son of God incarnated in human flesh. And this becomes even more evident when we see these titles that the author gives, that which he is talking about. In verse 1, he calls it the word of life. In verse 2, he calls it the life and the eternal life. 
Which again should bring John 1 to mind when the same author calls Jesus the word and says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. That which John is talking about here is God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who was from the beginning and who came in flesh to save us. He is the word of life and he is eternal life embodied in the source of eternal life for us. And here's what this means, put simply, in Jesus, God is revealed to us definitively. That's why he's called the word. Because in his character, in his speaking and teaching, in his miracles, in his salvific work, God is communicated to us. In Jesus Christ, God is, is heard and he is seen. He's made touchable. And one pastor uses the illustration of a son to talk about this. It's pretty sunny out there today, at least it was when I came in this morning. Try looking up and staring at the sun. Try looking up and staring at the sun. Actually, don't do it. You can't do it. It's far too bright. It will burn your retina up. It's a horrible idea to try to look at the sun with the naked eye. What do you need? You need a filter. You need some protective lenses. You need sunglasses, perhaps. Similarly, in and of ourselves, we can't see God. We can't come in close contact with him. I think about Moses in Exodus. He, he asks God, God, let me see your glory. Let me see a manifestation of your glory. And the Lord says, no one can do that and, and actually live. If you look at God, you'll burn, the, your soul will burn up and wither away. He is too holy, and we, sinful humanity, are not holy. So we need a filter. We need something between us. Now think about that Christmas hymn that we sang all last month. Hark the herald angels sing. That one line in the second verse, he says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It doesn't say veiled in flesh, the Godhead hides. No, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Jesus is the filter. Jesus, in Jesus, humanity sees and hears and touches God. You, you, you don't need to wonder what God is like. You, 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 when you see Christ, when you see the Christ of compassion and love and forgiveness, you're seeing God. When you look at the Christ who pronounces judgment on the wicked and oppressing and defends the weak, you're seeing God. When you see the Christ who dies on the cross to forgive his enemies, you're seeing God. Of course, though, Jesus is no longer physically here. We don't visibly see him now. We, don't, we can't physically touch him right now. He's here with us spiritually, but physically he's ascended and he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we can no longer, at this moment in time, we will again one day, but right now we can't see him physically. We can't touch him with our hands. So how can we see and hear and behold Jesus now? This brings us to our next question. We, over and over again in this little introduction, the author keeps referring to we. He doesn't identify himself. He says, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us, which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you. Now, there's no shortage of theories as to who these personal pronouns are referring to, and I I read many of them this last week, and it's just annoying. Some believe that the word me simply means it's just the author speaking of himself. Of course, we know that only one person is writing the letter. He speaks of himself as a single individual several times in the letter. It's not as if a community of people are all holding the same pen together and writing this. You know that. So the reason that we here in the first few verses is used like in the royal sense, the royal we. You, know, you often hear kings and queens say we when they're just simply talking about themselves. So they think that's what the author is doing here. However, that would be strange if that's what the author meant since he refers to himself simply as I throughout the letter uh, at other points in the book. Still others reason that the author is speaking of himself and the recipients of his writing since throughout the letter he uses the word we to speak of himself and his audience collectively just the next paragraph, the author writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, which of course includes himself and the recipients of this, uh, this writing and all the Christians that exist uh, in general. However, in these first few verses, it most definitely seems that he's talking about a more specific group of people, doesn't it? He's, he's not just talking about those who call themselves Christians. Look at specifically what characterizes this group in uh, in, in verse 1, this, this we, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It's a group of people who have heard and who have seen Christ. And, and not just seen him, but like those who have looked upon him, he says. Literally meaning like they hadn't just seen him once or glanced at him, but they like gazed upon him. They spent a significant amount of time with him. They traveled with him for like three years all over together. And not only, not only have they heard, have they seen, have they gazed upon him, but they've, they've touched him. They've touched him with their hands. This group seems to be those who are eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And moreover, not only are they eyewitnesses, but they've been commissioned, these, this we, they've been commissioned for a specific task. Let's look at uh, verse 2. He says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. They were commissioned to testify and proclaim what they have witnessed with their own eyes and ears and hands and hearts. Okay, so what group of people in the Bible were eyewitnesses to Christ and were commissioned to testify and proclaim about what they saw? You can answer. The apostles. The author. This is his way of writing this little introduction. Is his way of claiming apostolic authority. Some of you might remember when we walked through Paul's letter 
to the Galatians in 2017. And Paul begins that letter by saying, Paul, an apostle, not through man, not through men or, uh, or not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father. And that was Paul's way of saying, you know what? I've seen Christ and he has commissioned me to authoritatively testify of him and proclaim him to you. And likewise, the author here is writing and saying, listen, I I write to you as someone who walked with Jesus, who rubbed shoulders with them. I'm writing to you as someone who has now been sent by Jesus to tell the world about him. He's saying, I'm an apostle of the Lamb of God. But more specifically now, which apostle is he? We've probably noticed the book is called 1 John. Interestingly, the the author nowhere names himself as John. How did the early Christians come to the conclusion that the author of this letter is the Apostle John? Well, think about how much similarity we've already seen in these first four verses to John 1 and and John's gospel. That's not where the similarities end either. I mean, as we're going to be working our way through 1 John, we're going to see all sorts of theological themes and topics that come up in John's gospel again and again. They're going to come up here again and again and again. You could say that the author seems to be John because the theology between this letter, the theology of this letter and the theology of the gospel according to John is the same theology. Furthermore, history bears this out. There's an early church father named Polycarp. He was the bishop in, in Smyrna. He's personally mentored by the Apostle John when he was still fairly young and John was older. And Polycarp, who knew John and knew him intimately, attributed this letter to the Apostle John. And of course, there's more evidence for this as well. I mean, there's so much evidence for this, the author of this letter to be John. And, and, and I'm not going to bore you by getting into it now. If you have questions, if you want to come talk to me about it afterwards, we can talk about it. I'll give you some reading, uh, but I, I won't bore you with that. I'll spare you. But suffice it to say that we here is the apostles. And the specific author is the apostle John. And he's writing as someone who knew and heard and saw and touched Jesus. Like, think about it. He's writing as someone who hasn't just read the Sermon on the Mount or the Great Commission. He's writing as someone who heard those words come from the lips of Christ himself. He was present with and heard the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus when Christ showed how the Old Testament scriptures predicted and foretold him. He's writing as someone who saw Jesus walk the road to Jerusalem and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's writing as someone who beheld Christ as he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he raised Lazarus from the dead and turned water into wine. He's writing as someone who beheld Christ on the cross and three days later after his resurrection, he walked with him and traveled with him and rubbed shoulders with him. He's writing as someone who at the Last Supper laid his head on the bosom of Christ and rested there. He's writing as someone who ran to the tomb that Christ was buried in and found it empty. He's writing as someone who saw and touched and heard the risen Christ and saw him ascend into heaven. John and the apostles witnessed all of this. They testified of it and proclaimed it in the first century world and they recorded it for us in the pages of the New Testament. And what's more, they suffered for it. 
All of them but John were tortured and killed for their witness. John himself was arrested and and exiled to die on the barren island of Patmos for his testimony. And I want you to realize what this means for us as we hear and consider Christ this morning. Our faith isn't based on cleverly devised myths. Our faith isn't even based on, on feelings or abstract philosophical concepts. The basis of our faith is a real historical person who lived and died and rose again for our salvation. The apostles looked upon him. They heard his voice. They touched him. You know, sometimes people define faith as believing something for which there's no evidence. That's a horrible definition. You know, we we have evidence We have eyewitness testimonies and records here. I've I've, I've heard Christians say that they believe in Christianity because they they feel it in their bones. You know, Christ is risen in my heart. That's how I know he's alive. Or, or, uh, you know, I, I know that I know that I know. I feel it. I tell you this morning, that's not enough. That's not enough. There are times when you're not gonna feel it at all. There are times when your faith is weak. There are times when you struggle with doubt, where you find yourself in deep despair and you wonder how on earth all of this could be true. Throw yourself upon this then. John is telling you, I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. He worked great miracles. He rose from the dead. And Peter says the same, and Matthew, and Paul, and the others. And they were imprisoned and tortured and killed for their witness. They weren't lying about it. No one dies for a lie. And we have their eyewitness testimonies recorded for us on the pages of the New Testament. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just, I want to challenge you to read the gospel according to John. I want to encourage, read the gospel according to John. Here's the thing. If Jesus didn't truly rise from the dead, if this is all a myth, then it doesn't matter. It's total bunk. And we should all just get on with our lives and forget this whole Christianity thing. But if he truly, if he truly rose from the dead, if these are historical verifications that the resurrection is a reality, then this matters eternally for you. This is of eternal importance for you. You know, a minister named Douglas Sean O'Donnell tells a story about his his interaction with two Mormon missionaries who wound up in his house for a discussion one day. Their discussion eventually became a discussion of the differences between the Church of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, and the Apostolic Church of Jesus Christ. That's historic Christian orthodoxy. And O'Donnell pointed out, he, he said to these two young men, he said that the Mormon faith simply has no historic eyewitness accounts to attest to its claims. It's something true about pretty much every other religion except Christianity. They're based on private spiritual experiences or revelations that a single individual received in which they recorded. They're not based on history not based on eyewitness accounts of multiple people. The same is true of Mormonism. And so O'Donnell points this out and and he tells the story. He says, 
that they quickly became frustrated with his fact-finding mission. And in haste and apparent disgust, one of the young men stood up and replied, listen, I'm a Mormon because I have faith and I hope that you would still believe in Christianity even if there were no historical evidence to support it. O'Donnell goes on, he says, what do you, what do you make of that reply? It certainly fits the current postmodern mentality. It does have a ring of piety to it. But since I'm neither postmodern nor overly pious, I would have none of it. I immediately and emphatically stated that I would not believe in Christianity if there were no historical evidence to support its claims. I would not believe in Jericho or Jerusalem if there were no historical verification that uh, such cities ever existed. I would not believe that Jesus walked the earth and died on the cross unless there was proof. I would not believe that he rose from the dead unless eyewitnesses had actually heard his voice, seen his face, and touched his body. And he's exactly right. My friends, our faith is not blind. It is not belief in something for which there is no evidence. We have historical evidence recorded by eyewitnesses and we're holding it right here in our hands. Our faith is based on history and facts, not feelings and myths. And because our faith is historical and factual, we experience a very real salvation. We experience a very real fellowship with God the Father. And we enjoy a deep, deep assurance. Which brings us to the last question, why? Why? Why is John writing this letter? He tells us several times. First, he tells us in verse three that he writes for the purpose of fellowship. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John writes so that these churches and churches for generations to come might be in fellowship with the apostles. Because when someone has fellowship with the apostles, when someone believes their eyewitness testimonies, they have fellowship with God. That's how you can be in fellowship with God is receive the eyewitness testimonies, believe the eyewitness testimonies of the apostles this morning. The word translated as, as fellowship, here's a word we've seen a couple times over the last few years together. The word is koinonia. It's a word that means participation or communion. It's used sometimes to talk about what takes place in the Lord's Supper. It's used sometimes to talk about what takes place between two individuals in sexual intercourse. It's, it's talked about sometimes like a business partnership and other things. But what this word is talking about here is a relational bond that ties us together as Christians. John is saying, I'm writing this to you because I want you, I want to count you as my brothers and sisters. But what's more, this is, this is no mere human fellowship. He goes on to say that this is a fellowship with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. This is a fellowship, this is a communion with, this is a participation in the triune God. If you take the apostles at their word and trust in Jesus, you have an unbreakable relational bond with the triune God. And you have to understand that when we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about the forgiveness of sins. We're talking about being reconciled to God and having fellowship with him for all of eternity. We're talking about eternal life. 
That's what we mean when we talk about salvation around here. We're talking about being reconciled to the sovereign God who created us forever. This fellowship with God is a gift given to us in Jesus Christ, the word of life, and it comes to us. It's pulsating to us through the apostles. All who accept the testimony and proclamation of the apostles receives fellowship with this God for every eternal life. Jesus is the embodiment and source of eternal life for us. Next, we see that John is writing this for the purpose of joy. He says, interestingly, in verse four, he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That seems strange, doesn't it? He's writing that our, his joy may be complete, fulfilled. He's writing so that his own joy would be fulfilled. That just seems selfish, doesn't it? But is it really, I I mean, as a pastor, I can attest to the reality that when I obey the Lord, like my joy is full, like I'm happy when I'm walking in obedience. That makes me joyful. But I tell you, when you guys, when Veritas are walking in obedience to the Lord, my joy is fuller. It's made complete. When I'm flourishing in Christ, I'm happy. When I see you guys flourishing in Christ, persevering in prayer, persevering and believing through hardship, serving God's people well, I'm much happier. And you parents, you you parents can can testify to this as well. Similarly, there's, there's nothing like seeing your child flourish. There's nothing like seeing your child walk in obedience, confessing trust in Christ. I remember talking with one of you recently, your face beaming so giddy and excited because one of your children told you that they had trusted in Christ for their salvation. Nothing makes you happier. Nothing makes you more joyful than that. And similarly, John is writing to his children in the faith and he's saying, oh, that you would remain steadfast and be assured. That would make me the happiest, most joyful old man in the world. He's a very old man at the time of writing this, by the way. Lastly, he writes so that God's people may have assurance. That God's people would have assurance. We've read it several times this morning. This is the overarching purpose of the book. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's no coincidence that John starts his letter or sermon on Christian assurance with an, with a, uh, an account of his eyewitness testimony of the person and work of Jesus. He will at times throughout the book ask God's people to consider their own doctrinal purity, their own spiritual devotion, their own ethical habits in order to give them assurance. But here he, he starts where Christian assurance ought always start. He says, look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we often measure someone's love for us by what they're willing to give up for us. We know our parents love us because they changed our diapers. Our moms birthed us. That's pretty hard to do. About half of you can can attest to. Our parents worked hard to to put food on the table and clothes on our back and and the like. We, We know our church family loves us because because they're willing to help us in times of need. We receive financial and emotional, spiritual support from one another. Everything pales in comparison to what the Son of God gave up because of his love for us. He gave up the glories of heaven to come and put on flesh in a fallen, broken world. 
to suffer. He gave up the bliss of being by the Father's side to come and be spit upon and mocked and beaten and tortured for us. He, he gave up being eternally worshipped by the myriad of angels in heaven to come down and hear humanity cry, crucify him. He came down to be crucified. He came down to suffer and be tortured and to die alone, naked, ashamed on a cross. He did that for you, Christian. No one loves you like Jesus. No one is, no one is as committed to you as Jesus. No one roots for you like Jesus. No one is more for you than Jesus Christ. No one has gone or will go to the depths to which he went for you. No one loves you better than him. And he's proved it by what he's done. Let that assure you. Let that, let that comfort you. Let that be proof to you that, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray.